My name's Rob Howes. This is the SLAS Discovery Podcast. Welcome to the SLAS Discovery Podcast. So today I'm joined by Jamie Darlene from the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, NCATS, in the USA, who is guest editor on the August special collection entitled Approaches for Prioritizing High Quality Chemical Matter in Chemical Probe and Drug Discovery. Hey, Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a physician scientist. I'm currently working as a contractor at NCATS, the NIH, and I focus on high throughput biology and preclinical medical directorship. And prior to that, I'm a trained clinical pathologist and also um, a background in chemical biology. Great. Thank you. So about the special collection. Can you tell us about what is high quality chemical matter and why it's important in probe and drug discovery? And more importantly, why is it interesting to you? Well, the high priority chemical matter, I think any of us that do screening or medicinal chemistry know that a little bit of it is eye of the beholder, right? What is good and what's bad. And there's some, you know, everybody has their opinion, but I guess what I call, you know, high quality are, are those molecules that have a higher chance of, of downstream success, because ultimately we want to translate this into helping patients or to make specific probes to solve important scientific questions. And I guess you can contrast it with stuff that you know is just a, a waste of time, a waste of resources, because it's never going to actually generate something useful. And so... I like to think that this topic chose me dating back to when I was in grad school, getting stuck on a lot of projects related to real and virtual high throughput screening, where all the stuff that we that looked as like an attractive hit turned out to be either an artifact or it was non-specific activity. And I, I must have a black cloud on me or something because essentially no matter what project I would get, I would see the same type of these compounds arising. And I basically knew that this is not high quality chemical matter. And really the importance of it is of focusing on the highest quality stuff early on is if you don't, it diverts resources. It leads to flawed conclusions. People say that this pathway does X, Y, and Z when in fact it's not even reproducible or um, it, it's due to a completely different mechanism because of, of the nature of the compound. And ultimately, patients and scientists, we're, we're all hurt by this because, again, it diverts resources. Grants that, um, you know, are very worthwhile are not being funded because that money's going to something that potentially can be an artifact or the not enough control experiments were done. And it, there might be actually a project that's more appropriate that has a lower risk and a, and a higher reward. So that's that. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It, it's always hard to know, isn't it? What constitutes a high quality chemical matter? I guess it's, you know it when you see it. Um, so I think some of it, one, one person that I worked with earlier on said, you know, if we were that good at saying what's going to be a drug and what's not, we probably would have developed everything at this point, right? And so I think it's a little bit more easier to say what's lower quality. 
right? And so we, you know, you want to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so part of this is the, the art and science and the different approaches to how you would find the higher quality matter. With that, again, there is some subjectivity to it, but you know, there's one thing is you want to identify stuff that has favorable characteristics. But on the other side, you want to have methods that can push aside the stuff that you know has major liabilities. And again, some of that stuff may turn out to be useful, but it, it has such a high risk or there's just so many liabilities that in a resource limited setting, whether that's academics, industry or government, you have to pick you know, you want to, again, focus where you're going to have the highest odds of success. So again, if we could just, if we knew we screen something and we see these thousand hits and oh, that's going to be the drug, I think, you know, we, we would have a lot more therapies. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're not there yet. Sure. An interesting question about the difference between a chemical probe and a drug. I mean, is one just a forerunner to another, in your opinion? No, I, I, I think... The, it really depends on, on every specific project, right? Again, sometimes a, a probe can just be an intermediate in the path to developing a drug that it just doesn't have certain properties that are more desirable in, in a higher order system like an animal or it, it doesn't work well once you, it scales into, into humans and it's just kind of a natural stopping point. Or there are some things that you specifically say, this isn't an important clinical question, but we need to develop a probe to study it in a scientific setting. So I, th I think, again, there are lots of ways to get drugs or probes. And so I think it really depends on the nature of your project and the question. Both have utility, right? Because being able to interrogate systems by chemical perturbation as opposed to genetic perturbation, they, those can lead to very different phenotypes. And so I'm of the, the mindset that it's good to have both, both options. Yeah, I, I agree. I think chemical probes can be really invaluable in, in telling you something about the target. And you're right, they may give you information that might help the drug development itself. So yeah, turning to the special collection then, can you tell us about some of the, you know, some of the papers that are in there? Yeah, so this special collection Really, there's, there's four manuscripts that, you know, I think they're, they're all excellent. And really, the first one is it's by Catherine Nelson and, and Mike Walters at, at Minnesota, and they focus on these natural history visualizations. So what it is, is it's an intuitive visual summary of any sort of reported hit from, you know, you, you do a screen and you're going to report the lead compound from it or the, the, the primary hit that you're interested in. It's a succinct way of saying, here are the, a summary, the promiscuity, the purity, it's calculated physical chemical properties and just how, what's known about it in the literature. So you can imagine that could be several pages of writing that if you were to spell that out in a manuscript, but this is kind of a condensed way that's visually appealing. And so that's one. Then um, there's another great manuscript by Sam Hoare. And what he talks about are some of the challenges with measuring drug residence time of compounds. There's a lot of interest since, you know, Robert Copeland, it, probably the most famous of talking about drug residence time. And that's, you know, a lot of people are interested in kind of manipulating that for, you know, in the drug discovery and development process. But 
it turns out, you know, Sam has described a lot of potential pitfalls that one can encounter. And he really talks about things like drugs that have extremely long dissociation times um, or other basically setups of your assay that can lead to misleading results and where you may, again, focus not on the highest quality chemical matter, but you may be, um, again, not prioritizing the best chemical matter because just the way your assay is constructed. There's another great paper by Bridget Wagner and Paul Clemens at the Broad Institute where they describe their group's experience using informer sets. And I think this is something that is being increasingly utilized at a lot of places, whether it's small biotechs or pharma and even academics, where you want to pick a representative, smaller collection you know, that you can screen at a, at a lower budget and then use that to then iterate again with a, another focus collection or you, you pick whatever the hits are from that and you do more in-depth screening on that. And, you know, they talk about there's libraries where people say, oh, we have a kinase specific set or a GPR specific set, but they've described it their set in their paper about the diversity oriented synthesis set that they've used. So coming from Broad and, and you know, Stuart Schreiber lab, you know, you can imagine that's very near and dear to, to that, to Broad. And so they've assembled this kind of informer set based on the DOS library and their experiences. And I think we'll see more and more of that. Because again, not everybody can screen a million and a half compounds in, in a high throughput screening. Not um, they. Yeah. Well, then that, that's a whole nother podcast, right? You know, yeah. again, there's different people have different uh, approaches. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually, on that paper, because... I know from my experience, it's a lot of the time it's about getting the information early. And, you know, the beauty of something like a large high throughput screen is you get a lot of information, but often that takes time to get. Whereas if you're doing something like a focused iterative screen, you get a lot of information about your target and the, uh, I guess, the ability that the drug ability of that target quite quickly. So it sounds like that's a really interesting approach that they've done with having this diversity based focus set. Yeah, and I think we can get back to, you know, there's certainly great things about that approach. And with all of these, there are, there are other things that you have to consider too. But then just the last manuscript that, that is very useful, something new that we wanted to try for SLS Discovery was this brief guide by Kamyar Hadian um, in Germany, where it's essentially similar to what Cell does in their snapshot format where it included is this high quality PDF that's meant for like a poster in a lab that describes basically the general approach for post HTS screen cascade. So whether you have a biochemical or cellular based assay, what are the things you need to do post screening? Those are things that again, anybody in this field knows should be doing right. Like your orthogonal assays also a counter screen for your specific interferences. And then, you know, uh, the biggest thing that I advocate in, in cell-based assays is another counter secondary screen related to cellular health, because in, at least in my experience and a lot of my colleagues, that's the, one of the biggest causes of focusing on the lower quality chemical matter is seeing things that you're seeing a readout based off of um, some sort of cytotoxic effect, and it really isn't actually modulating the biology in the way we want. 
Yeah, that's really critical, isn't it? I think um, bleach is a really good drug if you're just going by its cytotoxic effect. <laughs> but obviously, it's a terrible, it's a terrible drug. So, yeah, yeah. And I agree. It sounds like that's a really interesting um, paper to have that to give people that guidance because there are lots of learnings in there from over the years around how is what is the best way to go from like you say to go from a, a a screen of a certain size down to hey do i have something which is a good high quality probe that i can understand more about the biology in the target to actually something that will then be making it all the way through to being a drug mm -hmm. that's a really interesting collection how do you see this area progressing in the future i think one obvious idea that would come to people listening to this would be hey surely we can use machine learning to just filter all of these things out? Yeah, so um, I think, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that's the, the, the topic that you have to mention, it seems in, in everything now is how is AI machine learning gonna benefit? And, um, you know, I can say that, yeah, for sure. I, I think there are ways that with all of these approaches, whether it's identifying the favorable properties or identifying those with disfavorable properties, you know, using AI machine learning. I think we all know that there are pros to that, to see patterns that aren't as intuitive to even seasoned medicinal chemists or pharmacologists, but then the trade-off is potentially you can train on certain biases, right? Um, that just may be a reflection of a particular batch effect or historical bias technology related um, institutional biases. So, you know, I think that's something just to keep in mind as we you know, apply it. And, and for some of those methods, you need a lot of data, a, a big, rich data set. And my experience with some pharma companies, they have that historical screening deck, very well curated data. But then I think as you get away from that model, it's harder at individual institutions, academics, or biotechs to have that level of high quality data in, in a way that you can, you know, unleash it on an AI machine learning system. So that's definitely one thing, you know, I think too, one of the, the approaches that I can see is there's a lot of informer sets or focus on focus screening collections that are on specific targets in high quality or known systems, but actually uh, one of the things I'm leading with a variety of academic industry and government is we're assembling a set of intentionally low quality chemical matter to inform in the context of screening what the readouts, undesirable readouts are. So then you have a hit that produces the same readout as these known interference, then you essentially you know, alarm bells should be going off and saying, hey, I should probably do some extra secondary tests on, on this compound of interest because it looks like it's doing the same thing as, you know, in your case, bleach, right, that he's mentioned. So that's something that we're, we're actively you know, working on. And again, I don't think that's, that's particularly new to some industry groups, for example, there's the undesired mechanism of action set um, from AZ um, and there are others, right? So um, I think that's one thing to, that readers can look forward to in the future is things like that. Yeah, that's a really 
important point, isn't it? You're not just looking for the good stuff. If you make sure you spike your screen with compounds with known issues, then you can look for the quality of your assay and the quality well, of the hits that come out. Yeah, and I think too, you know, as a clinician as well, when we develop a laboratory developed tests, we're actually also required to test the effect of, of interference mm. on our readout. And so whether it's something like what is, um, if there's high bilirubin in the sample, what does that do? Or what would a unrelated coronavirus do in your, in your COVID assay? And so stuff that's relatively standard and ingrained in the clinical realm, you can imagine, you know, why should it be any different for an industrial scale, high throughput screen, right? So I, I like to say we, we can learn from each field, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, there's another special collection coming out in the September issue, actually, of the uh, SLIS discovery around biophysics and early drug discovery. I, I think there, there might be a nice complementarity between the production of high quality chemical matter and the use of biophysics. What's your opinion in using biophysics and more traditional biochemical and cell-based assays? So I think everything is, there's a role for all these different technologies. I think biophysics are great because you can be more convinced that there's a direct interaction between whatever your, your compound or your peptide, whatever it is, and your, your, your target. Um, and that, that's very useful, you know, the trade-off is, is there's a lot of ways to demonstrate a biophysical interaction. It's just, is it a useful interaction, right? And so again, we could take a bunch of, you know, you could take 70% ethanol and modulate your, your enzyme, right? And, and get a biophysical readout, but clearly that's not translatable for a lot of our, our purposes. So taking that extreme example back a lot of ways, you know, if you have like an aggregator or something that can partially denature your, your protein target, that'll show some modulation on, on SPR, for example. So, you know, one of the limitations with some of these methods is you also need to know, have some sort of other assays, whether that's a biochemical assay that shows function or a, a higher order assay, more complex to actually show useful target engagement. So like everything, I'm a big advocate of, of multiple methods overlapping and uh, orthogonal because you really want to build a complete picture, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Now, thank you, Jamie. That's been really interesting. And I think we're all looking forward to seeing the special collection when it comes out in the August edition of SLS Discovery. So thank you for joining us today. You're great. Thank you for having me. That's an absolute pleasure.